Sometimes going slow is the key to growing fast. So we're now in this cycle. We're waiting for the economy to loosen up. But at the same time, we still have to play the game that's on the field in front of us. And we have to make sure that the right companies with the right ideas get funded and move forward. This is a show for startups hosted by experienced VCs that cuts to the chase to give you concise, relevant, and actionable advice to achieve sustainable growth. This is Go Slow to Grow Fast, a Mercury podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Go Slow to Grow Fast podcast brought to you by Mercury, an early stage venture capital firm. I'm Heath Butler, a venture partner with Mercury and your host. And today I have with me my partner and a Mercury managing director, Aziz Gilani. Aziz, welcome to the program. Great to be here, Heath. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And we'll have to get into you serving on President Biden's National Advisory Council on Innovation Entrepreneurship. We'll learn a little bit about that today as well. Okay, sure. So I'm super excited that you're here for today's topic because we're going to talk about the current economic environment and how that is actually affecting and impacting founders and their ability to raise capital and achieve their goals. So today we're going to have a lot of fun. Super excited for you to be here. But before we jump into that, why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey at Mercury, this NACI board that you're on for President Biden and what you guys are doing with that? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in Houston. I don't think I'm, I qualify as native because I got here in middle school, but right. I'm about as close to a native Houstonian as you can get, I guess. But while I was still in high school down in Clear Lake, I joined my first startup. It was called Access Multimedia Technology. And we were digitizing documents for the government with what was then cutting edge technology. Hmm. These were OCR engines. Um, OCR I, engines. Yeah. What year was this? Man, I think I was in the 10th grade. So this is probably like 1995. Wow. Wow, wow. OCR back then, I can't imagine what it was like. Then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were getting discs in the mail from Xerox with the latest cuts of the technology. So wow. it was a lot of fun. <laughs> Look, I spent about a decade working up and down the enterprise software stack. My first real job was at Lotus Development Corporation. And by real, I mean like I got regular paychecks. <laughs> and there we were setting up email systems for folks. And then over the next few years, I did everything from ERP implementations for a large system integrator to doing software procurement for a large public company, to finally working with a large Indian outsourcer to build software for enterprises. So just up and down that enterprise software stack. Lots of uh, domain expertise you were gathering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll pass the quiz on what I ended up starting to invest in later on. But went to grad school after that over at Northwestern and then signed up for and was accepted into the Kauffman Fellows Program. Okay. And I actually did my Kauffman Fellowship at Mercury. So joined Mercury in 2009. Actually, 2008. Eight, I got yeah, the year yeah. wrong. I was going to um, say, I thought it was 2008. Yeah, 2008. And man, I guess failure to launch. Like, I've been there ever since. Looks like uh, it all worked out. <laughs> It's been fun investing in the spaces that I previously was responsible for. I continue to invest up and down the B2B stack, enterprise software, and the problems that I used to run into when I was either at a company or I was trying to build software. 
No, that's really good. Now tell us about the NACI board. I guess it's all about who you know to a certain degree, but one of the folks that I did my Kaufman Fellowship with was working with Secretary Raimondo over in the Commerce Department. He had reached out to me because he knew I had done some previous work with the Obama administration and told me about the opportunity to work on NACI. If you've been following Secretary Raimondo or what's been happening over the Department of Commerce, just lots and lots of exciting things. You can make the argument that U.S. government has never been more active when it comes to encouraging entrepreneurship and innovation. And so when I saw the opportunity to advise, I jumped at it. Since I joined NACI, completely unconnected to me, <laughs> the uh, administration has passed a, a number of landmark pieces of legislation that have the U.S. government playing a very active role in terms of trying to either stand up or reinvigorate industries that America previously led in or is now emerging in. So the CHIPS Act has us very involved in the semiconductor industry. Yeah. The Build Back Better program was focused on trying to get grants out to get like certain pieces of the economy moving. And now we're looking at startup hubs, engines of innovation, and even AI technology. And all of those have appropriations that Congress gave that the Department of Commerce is working very closely with to make sure that we can really help the entrepreneurship landscape. And so been having a lot of fun looking at that. And then from the big picture, looking at new ways government can really impact it. So I serve on the board with the uh, presidents of Arizona State and Ohio State University. We're looking at the university model and how the government funds it and a variety oh, wow. of other means. No, that's really exciting. I know our local innovation hub, the ION, got some of the money through some of those programs. So mm -hmm. super exciting. Glad you're there. Glad you're there to, <laughs> yeah, to kind of yeah. And I definitely wave my Texas flag as often as possible there. Hey, that's all good. All good. All good. Let's dive in. We are in some very uncertain times. And when you look at the sort of macro environment, there's a lot going on. Although we've had some recent quarters of expansion, going back to last year, there were two quarters of negative expansion and now followed by a few quarters of positive expansion, but yet we're still looking at a recession. And then on the micro VC level, looks like funding's dried up for seed companies, bleeding into Series A. VCs have the lowest level of like valuation step up in a decade, which is how we yeah. get measured uh, yeah. if we're doing a good job or not. And then last, like late stage companies are facing headwinds because there's no liquidity. What do you make of all of this? We are an inflation-driven bind right now. Inflation started to spike up, so stuff started getting more expensive, and the Federal Reserve did their job. When inflation goes up, their job is to start pulling capital out of the system by increasing interest rates. Yep. Okay. When you start doing that, it has all kinds of consequences up and down the economy. So when you make money more expensive, it gets harder to get, and it just starts gumming up the works of this ecosystem that you and I participate in every day. It becomes harder to sell a company. It becomes yep. harder to access capital to fund a company. It becomes harder for our entrepreneurs to get customers because their customers are now looking at their pocketbooks pretty hard. So when you look at all of these things in conjunction, the whole system starts to slow down and it becomes harder for us to do what we do best. So we're now in this cycle. We're waiting for the economy to loosen up. But at the same time, we still have to play the game that's on the field in front of us. And we have to make sure that the right companies with the right ideas get funded and move forward. Yeah, you know, sometimes I think companies, founders, depending on what their previous experiences were, yeah. they don't factor all of these things in to their yeah. need or desire to raise money and build their company. Thomas Tung's 
recently released some data and, and asked the question, when is funding going to go back to normal? Using a linear model, he did some regression analysis, and he's saying, hey, I think things will get back to not 2020, 2021 levels, yeah. but when you look back to 2010 and you draw out what could it be or should it be, he's kind of saying maybe the end of 23, the beginning of 24, any takes on any of that and, and how funding might play out over the next year or so? Yeah, when I think about what it takes to get venture activity to increase again and to get back to stable median, I think about the three kind of things that are gumming up the works the most, which is, number one, we need to have a lower cost of capital. And that doesn't happen. And, and that's, by the way, completely out of our control. That's up to the Federal Reserve in terms of when they think that they've got inflation under 2%, they'll take their feet off the brake and they'll start tapping the gas. And if you talk, depending upon the economists you talk to, the projections are that happens somewhere in 2024, hopefully before 2025. Hmm. And maybe you can get more capital availability that way. Then the second piece of the ecosystem we have to solve for are exits. Currently, we're in the middle of an IPO drought. That window for companies to get liquidity through the public markets is just closed right now. Yeah. Although we have seen incremental yeah. movements towards Couple. it. We, we have that Mediterranean food company, Kava, go public. Yep. The fact that you and I, two venture capitalists, are talking about Mediterranean food <laughs> companies going public indicates yeah. how few IPOs yeah, we've right. seen. But Instacart is looking, mm -hmm. Arm is looking to come out, and we can maybe hopefully run some water through those pipes and see that IPO window open up. The reason why that's super important is because when startups IPO, that puts cash back in the pockets of our LPs. And that's that third phase, which is we need LPs to start opening up their pocketbooks again to fund VC funds, because that's where we get our money from in order to invest in startups. And so until you see all three of those things clear up, interest rates go lower, liquidity events increase, and LPs invest in more VC funds, we'll be in this weird environment in which we have decreased activity. So when you have the decreased activity, let's just maybe dig in on this a little bit, right? Sure. With the decreased activity, you have different things happening at different stages. Oh, yeah. A lot of times as we listen to pitches and we talk to people, again, it feels like, at least to me, a lot of times founders are so focused and head down on what they're trying to build and needing capital Sometimes the dots aren't being connected. So when you look at each stage of early stage VC, how is each stage impacted from seed all the way up to, say, like Series B in your, in your opinion? Yeah. So the way I think about it is you have early stage, mm -hmm. you have middle, and then you have growth. And it's almost like there are two different narratives happening at the same time. Narrative one is where the repricing events happened. So in 2020, as we know, we were in the middle of a VC bull market. Prices increased across the board. Activity increased across the board. Now, the folks who get impacted by the pricing the most and first are the folks who are investing in the later stages, in those growth rounds. Those guys, because they're looking, their hope is to get to liquidity and sell those companies really fast. When that door closed... And when the public markets corrected, they were the first to reprice. 
And so they started taking their multiples that they used to price their rounds down. Now, that's those are the first folks to reprice, and that eventually worked its way through the system. So first the late-stage guys did it, then the mid-stage guys did it, then the early-stage guys. You could argue some of them haven't even repriced yet, but that's the way that cascades through the system. And then for everybody uh, that might be listening, uh-huh. so we're talking into 21, like Q4, right. 21, beginning of 22, right? Yeah. Time frame. That's when right. When the late stage started collapsing and, and, right. and repricing. Now, the activity is a different story. And the reason why is because if you think about the funding cycles of these early pre-seed funds, those pre-seed funds, similar to the startups they're funding, are living pretty hand to mouth. And so they have to rely on replenishment of their funds by launching new funds from their LPs at a much faster frequency than some of their later stage brethren. And so that's why you saw the activity level on the pre-seed side contract faster. The repricing happened first on the later stage side, but the activity contraction happened on the early stage side. By the way, the activity is now constrained across all three layers of the cake now. It was just a question of time. Mm-hmm. So so now the, when you look at the way the market is broken out, contractions all across the board, yep. but it was just the order in which it occurred. And again, for everybody at home, activity, you mean the number of deals. VCs number of deals, doing, that's right. right. Yeah. yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting. And as you see the market hopefully opening back up next year, or hopefully it doesn't take till 25. How do you think that happens? Does it happen the same way or is it all at once? Big bang theory. (laughs) You want it to happen all at once, but that's seldom how it plays out. I think what you're going to see is because you need to see the liquidity events happen first, almost by definition, you're going to need to see the growth stage guys get to their exits first. And they're not going to get to their exits first until they see some positive signs from the public markets. And so I think similar to the way you saw the contractions occur Mm -hmm. in terms of pricing for the growth stage guys first, I think you'll see the growth guys be the first to increase their pricing again. Okay. And as those dollars hit the system, you're going to see the pre-seed guys be the first to jump back in. Got it. uh, In terms of doing more activity. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so similar to the way you saw the contraction play out, you're going to see the return to normalcy play out in a similar way. No, I agree with you. That makes that seems like it makes a lot of sense. So what happens in the meantime between now and then? Yeah. Who gets funded? I mean, we have to live, right? right? Absolutely. So when you think about to take us through each stage, in your opinion, what should you look like? What should you be thinking about and trying to do at each stage? Yeah. So the underlying principle here is now money is a lot more expensive than it used to be. And so in a world in which money is a lot more expensive than it used to be, and man, I have nothing but empathy and nothing but a feeling of guilt when I talk to my entrepreneurs about this, but we've had to completely change our tune in terms of the coaching and the encouragement we give our founders in terms of their orientation. Mm -hmm. Because when money is free and loose, the name of the game is growth. It's take that cheap money and apply it to get your market share, grow your business so that you can take advantage of those nice high fat multiples that exist out there for fast growing businesses. And what's now happened is in this new world where money is more expensive, Mm -hmm. cash is king. Yep. Capital efficiency is king. 
folks are looking at LTV to CAC ratios again. Suddenly right. they want to see those numbers nice and high right, where right. every dollar I spend on growth actually turns real lifetime value um, back to the business. We're looking at burn rates. We used to talk about 12 months from a funding event. Now we're talking about 24 months right. from a funding event. And by the way, those funding events are a lot smaller now than they used right. to be. It's about running leaner with higher gross margins to produce more lifetime value from your customers. And if you can pull that off, then that's really great. Now, that's asking a lot. Yes. And in this environment, that's really, really hard to do. Okay. And so for companies that can't make that pivot from grow, grow, grow to capital efficiency, life is going to get really tough. It's one of those things where it's, of course, the hardest for the entrepreneur. So let's be super clear. They're the ones who are in the hot seat. And us as VCs, we will do everything we can to help. But it's a large macro economy out there, and we're just trying to help them navigate it. So you're investing typically in a little bit later stage, that middle stage and the growth stage. But do you see anything different than what you just described for seed companies that are in the really early stage? You have to think about it from what is the market asking for right now? And so when I think about seed stage companies, I think about either a company that's focused on the exact right vertical. So like right now, like the flavor of the week is like AI. The flavor of the week is process improvement and efficiency through AI-related technologies. Mm -hmm. And if you can be in that right zone, then that's super helpful. But we're also looking for proof points because we know that go-to-market strategies that used to work don't work anymore. And so in a world in which we're focused on that, it's the faster you can get yourself to real traction with your customer in the form of money, in the form of revenue, man, that's super helpful. But right vertical, right traction points, those are all really, really helpful things. So earlier you mentioned Mercury had to change its tune from how we were investing I'd say in pre-2022 yeah. and now post-2022. Yeah. Tell us more about that. What are you looking for? How are you thinking about investing in companies in this environment? Yeah. And I don't know if I'd call it change in our tune. Mercury has the luxury of being from the middle of America. We were never the momentum investor that was investing $20 million on a PowerPoint deck at a $100 million valuation. That was never our style. Right. But I will say we've had to really look hard at capital efficiency for our companies. A lot of that has to do with the fact that we previously almost reactively took advantage of the debt markets that were available to us. Upon a funding round, would immediately get a very affordable line of credit from like one of our banking partners. And look, like the year 2020, 2019, those lines of credit were like three, five percent. Like they were very, very mm-hmm. modest. Yep. Those same lines of credit today are like 10% and up. And so in a world in which Even with our same term sheets, the cost of capital is going up. You got to look at a different equation in terms of your LTV to CAC ratios and what you want to grow against. And so we've had to look really hard at those. We've had to look really hard at what 
those downstream from us are looking for. So the, what the growth equity funds right. that come after us are looking for. Yeah, and, so, fund? and so those guys are very gross margin focused. Mm-hmm. They're very cash flow focused. And they want to make sure that their check is the last check into the business. And so we have to work even harder to make sure that we have eliminated any of the fat out of the value chain that our companies have. And so that means using our Mercury model, which you've helped architect for us, Mm -hmm. and try to get those companies to be in a position to do that. But that just means that the lens just gets a lot more scrutiny on it in terms of what we're investing in. You've had to go upstream a little bit. That's right. In terms of size of company, what a revenue is compared to where it was a couple of years ago. Yeah, I think so. And that's been fun. I don't want to ascribe to having fun in a market in which things are pretty tough for a lot of entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. Like I said earlier today, you have to play the game that's in front of you. And the game that's in front of us right now is there are a number of really great companies that were able to raise interesting early stage capital a few years ago that are growing at phenomenal growth rates with high gross margins, but are having a hard time getting to that growth round. And so that's created a really interesting market opportunity for us that we're doing everything we can to fill in that void. For those companies that are, call it at $5 million of annual recurring revenue, those are companies that in the old market used to be able to get the attention of some of these growth funders. Now those folks, they've sharpened their focus on higher ARR companies. And so that's created an opening for us to come in and help those companies get to the next step. And those are companies I love to work with. And your point is that not only has those, have those growth companies changed their pricing, yes. but they've also changed their floor. That's right, right. On where they want to start looking at companies, which has created an opportunity for a firm like ours. That's right. That's right. I think that in tough times, folks tend to stick to their knitting. And whereas before, folks were willing to experiment with their models a lot more in -hmm. terms of the diversity of revenue run rates that they'd work with, the diversity of the gross margins, even the geographies that they invested in, Mm -hmm. you've seen that aperture tighten up as the market has tightened up. And so that's just created a lot of opportunities for a fund like ours. So when you think about how tough funding is, spending your time focused on the right funding source is extremely important. So sometimes when a founder is not only the business may not be in a perfect place to get funded, but they're spending time looking in the wrong place, they kind of, it's like a double whammy for them, right? (laughs) What would you tell a founder in today's environment to do and how to think about building relationships with VCs and trying to find capital to keep the business going? Look, job one of a founder is to make sure your business doesn't run out of money. And so having the right relationships in place with the right sources of capital is everything. And so building up those relationships over time with folks who are actually deploying capital, I think, is important. Now, fortunately, we're all pretty transparent about every time we invest in a company. We all do our SEC Reg D filings and they get picked up by like every news source you can imagine. So it's really easy to see who's deploying capital and who's not. It's also really easy to see the types of businesses that we're funding. 
And we do our best. We press release and we talk to reporters all the right. time in which we talk about the characteristics of the businesses and why we invested in them. And so I think that entrepreneurs should borrow a page from the VC playbook and do some pattern matching and say, hey, if a VC is investing in e-commerce and I'm an e-commerce company, if a VC is investing in companies that are at my size, if a VC is investing in companies that look a lot like mine, and they don't have something that's directly competitive with me, then they're probably a prime candidate for me to talk to. And I think that the right way to start those types of conversations and relationships is by asking for advice. It's by reaching out through trusted third parties. It's by accessing us through the entrepreneurship organizations that we all partner with. There are a number of ways to reach out to us and to talk to us and get a feel for if we want to do business with each other. Aziz, this has been really good. This has been part one. And as you know, we talked about doing this in two parts. Yeah. Uh, in our next session, we are going to dig into a little bit more about how companies that are really thriving and those that are surviving. And unfortunately, to your earlier point, some of those are dying and talk a little bit more about how those different companies can uh, further navigate the current environment. Look forward to the conversation. Awesome. Awesome. 